This season, protect your post-harvest against stored product pests with an insect growth regulator from Central Life Sciences. Dagish America has partnered with Central Life Sciences to bring you a 10% discount code using code OCTOBER10 at dagishamerica.com from October 17th through November 4th. Save on case quantities of Diacon IGR Plus Quartz and Insulux Fog and Mill Spray Gallons. Again, that's October 10 for 10% off select Central Life Science IGR products at dagishamerica.com. Hello and welcome back to Dagish America Presents. I'm your host, Ben Harl, and I am so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you again about the industry that I work in. Last episode, we spent some time talking to Blake Buckner about rodent identification and control. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, please go back and give it a listen. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a group of pests that can be pretty challenging to control from a regulatory perspective. Quarantine pests. There are quite a few different pests that are classified as quarantine pests, and it's our job as fumigators to follow a strict set of guidelines to keep these pests from invading import-export countries that don't already have a native population. We've invited Derek Johnson from Cardinal Professional Products to discuss a few of the specific pests and understand how to navigate the strict regulatory requirements associated with their control. Derek Johnson is an associate certified entomologist with over 29 years in the pest control industry, holding certifications in 15 states. He also served on the NPMA's Fumigation Committee from 2015 to 2019 and has trained several companies and individuals along the way. So please help me welcome Derek to the podcast. Derek, thanks so much for agreeing to meet with me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, sir. All right. I kind of gave everybody a little bit of a brief introduction to you, but uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just kind of tell all of our listeners a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I guess personally, I'm a husband, a father of three, grandfather of one, professionally started in the industry in South Florida in in about 1993, uh, working for a company down there, been involved with fumigation pretty much ever since. I'm an associate certified entomologist, currently hold uh, applicators licenses in 16 states, uh, dealership licenses in in many states as well. I don't know the actual count at this point. (laughs) You lose Um, track, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you certainly lose track. Yeah. So like most of us that are in the industry for, I guess, the majority of my life at this point, once this industry gets a hold of you, man, it doesn't want to let go. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Certainly in a different capacity um, the last two years for me. Uh, most of my career has been spent in operations in the field, fumigating, managing, uh, being a regional director. So having held all of the different positions along the way. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm definitely talking to the right guy when it comes to uh, the, the topic of discussion for today. Well, we'll see. I hope so. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident of it. Yeah. I've known you for quite a while, Derek. Uh, I, I definitely know that you are a professional in the industry, uh, very knowledgeable. And so, again, I really thank you for uh, taking the opportunity to talk to us and the listeners today. Absolutely. So let's just dive right in here. Um, I, I know that this is a, a confusing and complicated type of fumigation that actually takes place. And I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about how to manage quarantine pests. 
You know, a lot of times when this gets brought up, because we're talking about U.S. regulatory requirements, we're talking about uh, regulatory requirements for a lot of other destination countries as well, it can get very confusing. And I know the paperwork across the board for all fumigations is pretty intense, but in particular with quarantine fumigations, it can be very intense. There's a lot of paperwork that has to be done. And once you learn how to do all of that, it's not really difficult to do, but getting to that point is pretty difficult. So <laughs> I want to start out by kind of just having you maybe define what we mean when we say quarantine pest. So yeah, um, I think I'll try and give as close to the uh, Wikipedia or the, the definition as you could find um, online. But so a quarantine pest is basically a, it's a plant pest of any economic importance that is either not present in a particular area or it's not well established or widely distributed and being officially controlled. So, again, any pest that poses uh, an economic threat to a state, a country that, again, has the potential to affect crops, product, commodity, that particular state, again, or or country can consider these particular pests as quarantine. Right. So, I mean, basically what it boils down to is there are a lot of pests in the world and different countries have different pest species. And part of our goal as fumigators or stewards of the food processing industry is to keep pests from inhabiting areas where they're not normally at. So we may have some pests in China, for example, or in India or in the United States. And then when we're shipping all of these goods across the world, our pests, we don't want them to invade China and India and England and Australia and all these other countries, and then vice versa. We don't want their domestic pests to invade our countries. That's pretty much what it boils down to, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah. But it gets complicated because all of these different countries have different regulatory requirements for treatment of quarantine pests. And so the paperwork, you know, making sure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's and making sure that you're following all these regulatory requirements can get pretty complicated. Am I right by saying that? Yeah. So here in the United States, we utilize the APHIS treatment manual, right, that's put out by the United States Department of Agriculture. Right. Um, who ultimately has, I guess, the jurisdiction that handles a lot of the a lot of the regulatory and state country requirements for us here in the U.S. But they work in conjunction, right, with our trading partners throughout the world, um, and help develop kind of a treatment schedule, if you will. You'll have to reference depending on the commodity type you're fumigating, the destination country where it's going to, where it's coming from. There'll be specific treatment specifications for all a wide variety of different commodity and insect types. Right. And the APHIS treatment manual, I mean, that's like the Bible for quarantine treatments. I mean, that thing is huge. It's like 900 or 1,000 pages in total, right? Yeah, it certainly is. The good thing is, is it's kind of broken down into segments. So when you start to break into to looking at that entire treatment manual, there's loads of information. But once you start to dive into it, the actual treatment portion of it, where you find all your different schedules, that's a little bit easier to maintain and manage. I guess part of the APHIS treatment manual, right, is, is working in conjunction with the USDA here in the United States and making sure that the individual or the company that's requesting 
um, opportunities to fumigate for quarantine pests, right? There's a lot of, of requirements that they're going to have to prove to the USDA. Um, I think it's called a compliance agreement, right, with the USDA, where you have to provide documentation, all of your equipment needs, um, make sure that you have everything necessary to perform these specific, you know, high-profile fumigations. And the, or the APHIS treatment manual, it includes more than just fumigation treatments, correct? I mean, it talks about heat treatments and all kinds of other stuff, right? Absolutely. Um, again, depending on the destination country or here in the United States, there'll be a, a wide range of acceptable treatment applications, uh, like you mentioned, whether it's heat, whether it's cold, and all the different types of fumigants that can be used, SF, phosphine, methyl bromide. They do allow for, for some uh, variation in treatment, but even those heat treatments, they're pretty specific, right? They tell you uh, at what temperature and for how long that you need to maintain those treatments. Right. And I mean, the good news with this, in my opinion, at least, is the treatment schedule being so robust and comprehensive, uh, so to speak, it really takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. I mean, it basically tells you step by step exactly what you need to do to both control the potential for quarantine pests and then also satisfy the regulatory requirements for the destination country. Sure. Again, I, and I think it needs to be, again, when, when you talk about a, a quarantine pest, and I'm sure we're going to get into talking about some specifics, but some of these pests, you know, have the potential to completely devastate an industry, right? Not speaking about anything in, spe in specific, but I, I know we a lot of times worry about the pests that we get here in the United States and damaging a lot of our crops. But if you take like the BMSB, the brown marmory stink bug that's established here in the United States, if the Australian New Zealand government allowed those insects to get in there, it could decimate their crops and basically put a damper on that country's agricultural uh, output for a season or, or multiple seasons. Same thing here. If we get a pest from, like you said, China or India or wherever we're receiving goods that's not used to being here, it can decimate crops and impact this country, states, farmers, you know, economically to where it may be difficult to recover. And you're absolutely right. You know, we're trying to decrease the potential for crop failures or insects to get into or out of all of these different destination countries. You know, we've seen this huge increase in global trade over the last, you know, 30 to 50 years, especially in the last 20 years. And a lot of foodstuffs are going into and out of a lot of different countries now and more than ever. And so it's become a much larger concern over the last you know, especially the last 20 years with all of these crops going into and out out of, you know, the United States and then, and then some of these other countries. Another thing that I think is interesting, too, is, you know, we, we all work off of labels, applicators, manuals, SDSs, all this stuff in order to stay safe. And we all, you know, all these different countries have different label requirements that you have to follow. But when it comes to quarantine treatments, the labels, they while they still apply they get a little bit more fluid in some respects because the treatment schedules, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the treatment schedules kind of supersede the domestic label requirements. So, yeah, they, they do allow uh, for some variation. Again, as we know here, uh, the label is the law. But the treatment manual, you are correct, allows us for some flexibility, if you will, in all of our treatments. Right. So the rules still apply, but the rules are the treatment schedules 
in conjunction with the domestic applicator's manual label in SDS. That is correct. Right. Okay. So, because I get, I, you know, and I'm sure you have too, but I've gotten that question a lot. They're like, hey, wait a minute. I'm looking at this treatment schedule and the application rate that the treatment schedule is calling for is way different than the application rate that the applicator's manual is calling for. You know, which one should I follow? Well, if, if you're doing a true quarantine fumigation or quarantine treatment, you need to follow the treatment schedule. You need to also follow the label, but the treatment schedule is kind of the law of the land when it comes to quarantine fumigations. Yeah, and then again, I, I think if, if anybody ever has any question, reaching out to your manufacturer for clarification um, of specific, of whatever product that you're specifically using, we are very fortunate here that we have some very knowledgeable manufacturer reps, your distributor reps, we can certainly help navigate uh, some of those challenges, right? And get some better understanding of what the treatment manual means versus what the label is saying, just to make sure that we are doing everything in accordance with the law, again, labeling, and then also the APHIS treatment manual and their and other countries' qualifications. I couldn't agree with you more on that. You always want to err on the side of caution. You know, don't take risks. Don't assume one way or another. If you have questions or if you're confused about something, especially with fumigation, because there's such a safety concern, ask those questions. Ask the manufacturer of the fumigant those questions. Reach out to the USDA. Ask them questions. They are there as a resource to help you be able to perform the fumigation or perform the treatment in a safe manner and in a way that's going to make it acceptable for the destination country. So you're 100% spot on. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. There's a lot of times, you know, when, when we were in operations, right, you look at relationships with state regulators, with the Department of Agriculture, you, you look at them as kind of like an, an oversight body, right? And there's there's a, a level of their job that they do have to provide oversight. But more importantly, the people that I've dealt with in my 30 years in this industry, man, they're a resource, they're a tool, and they're more than happy to get in there and, and explain to you and help everybody have a complete understanding of specific state laws. When we're talking about state regulators, um, we're talking about the Department of Agriculture. Certainly reach out to your uh, USDA inspectors, your local inspectors, and and ask them questions, get clarification. Reach out to your manufacturers, your distributor reps. We can all certainly help point you in, in the right direction. So now let's dive in and let's talk about a couple of the different quarantine pest species. Now, I know that there are a ton of quarantine pests that we have to concern ourselves with, but there are a few that are more of a concern or at least more in the public eye than others. So let's kind of talk about the ones that we hear about the most right now. And I think one of the ones that we hear about a lot is the spotted lantern fly. I was hoping maybe you could kind of give us a little bit of, you know, some idea on the physical characteristics, their habits, life cycle, some stuff like that. Sure. So, yeah, um, again, spotted lantern fly uh, originated in China. I think it was first detected here in the U.S. on or about 2014 in, in southern Pennsylvania. They have about a one-year life cycle, if you will, to identify them. They, you know, fortunately for us, you know, we're, we're in a pretty cool business. And although these insects, these pests are incredibly devastating, when you get a chance to look at them, they're a really beautiful insect or, or pest, right? Yeah. So the adults have the forewing is gray with uh, black spots. Wingtips are reticulated, black blocks outlined in gray. 
and the hind wings have a contrasting patch of red and black with a white band. Again, like I said, life cycle is about a year. The adults lay one inch long egg masses in the fall on hard surfaces such as trees, decks, your house, outdoor equipment, vehicles, firewood. And I think when we start talking about where they lay their eggs, right, this is one of the things that I wanted to mention earlier was a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these pests, they're not necessarily coming in on the commodity itself when they're imported, right? They're coming in on packaging material, pallets, uh, cardboard boxes, things like that. So again, it's not uncommon to see this spotted lanternfly uh, laying its eggs on material that you wouldn't otherwise think that they would. The adults emerge in July. They're about an inch long or so, half an inch wide at rest. The adults can fly. They have wings, obviously. They can fly, but they also can jump. So the eggs are protected. Um, as we said, we, they lay them on hard surface. They're protected uh, with a mud-like covering, and the, they hatch in the spring. They go through no, four nymphal stages and appear red and white during the last stage. The adults emerge in July and are about one inch long, half an inch wide at rest with those eye-catching uh, red identifying wings that we talked about. The adults remain active until winter and can fly, whereas the nymphs only are able to hop. However, the adults' wings often remain closed since they tend to jump more than they fly. Right. So they go through a gradual metamorphosis rather than a complete metamorphosis, right? Correct. Okay. And what food source are they primarily interested in? So, again, they have a wide host range. They primarily feed on uh, the tree of heaven but they're opportunistic, right? They're going to feed on all different types, hops, maple, walnut, fruit trees. They're not going to discriminate. They'll feed on trees and, and foliage, e even in your backyard, right? They're not just a threat to large crops. Well, they're certainly a threat to large crops. Uh, it's not impossible for them to decimate even, you know, the homeowner's tree crop, if you will, in their backyard. Right. So they are definitely equal opportunity consumers then. <laughs> Absolutely. <Right>? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Where are we seeing these in the United States or are we already seeing them in the United States? Yeah. First identified in that Pennsylvania area. And I think uh, currently they're active in about 13 counties. It may be more now um, in the Pennsylvania area, but they've stretched out to Virginia, West Virginia and areas surrounding that Pennsylvania area. Okay. So now let's uh, change gears a little bit and let's talk about another insect that we hear a lot about when we're talking about quarantine pests, the emerald ash borer. What can you tell us about this insect? The emerald ash borer, another pest, right, that we believe to have originated from China, came here in the United States on or about 2001, 2002, believed to have come through the shipping on wood crates, if you will, very small beetle about the size of a cooked grain of rice between three-eighths and a half an inch long and about a sixteenth of an inch wide. Because they're so small, they can often go undetected, uh, but they can be seen in ash, bark, and leaves during warmer months. Um, the adult beetles emerge from infested ash trees by creating a D-shaped exit hole. That is about an eighth inch wide or so. Uh, most beetles will disperse less than a half a mile from their original location unless transported by humans and firewood and other unprocessed wood products. Uh, the larvae themselves are cream colored. They're slightly flattened, a pair of brown pincher-like appendages on the last segment. Their size varies and they feed and grow under the ash tree bark. When you peel the bark back, they kind of eat, they wind back and forth as they eat and kind of create like a Z or an S-shaped pattern or gallery under that bark. They feed under that bark for a year or two, 
and can survive in green wood, such as firewood, if the bark is still attached. All right, so the next insect on the list that we hear a lot about is the brown marmorated stink bug. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of give us a little bit of information on that insect and, you know, what it looks like and what we need to be thinking about when we're looking for it. It's pretty well established here in, in the U.S. And, and as a result, this is why it's deemed a quarantine pest in areas like New Zealand and Australia. Again, we mentioned the, the damage they can do to the crops. It's another one of those pests that originated somewhere in, in Asia, right? China, Japan, Korea, and other Asian regions. In September of 1998, it was found in Pennsylvania. Again, I don't know what it, what is it about Pennsylvania that's <laughs> attracting all these all these pests. Yeah. So what happens with the brown marmorated stink bug is here because we go through seasons, right? So like a lot of occasional invaders, as we like to call them, they overwinter, right? So they find outside storage material. So when we're you know we send over all different types of commodities to these regions. And a lot of our products get stored outside. Again, wood pallets, lawn furniture, even automobiles, right, that we send overseas uh, to different countries. These pests will overwinter in these nooks and crannies, if you will, inside this material. So it has to be treated before it leaves. Pretty distinctive. If you've never had an opportunity to experience the brown marmorated stink bug, there's a reason why it's called a stink bug. <laughs> yeah. um, if it's crushed or scared, uh, if you step on one, uh, you're going to, it's a real pungent odor. I don't really know if I can explain what it smells like. It certainly has a, a distinct smell, at least to me it does. And again, it's just one of those pests that have, that wasn't originally established here in the U.S., but as a result of time and, and our climate, it certainly established itself here. The adults, approximately 17 millimeters long and are shades of brown on both the upper and lower uh, body surfaces. They are shield-shaped, like other stink bugs, almost as wide as they are long. To distinguish them from other stink bugs, uh, look for lighter bands on the antenna and darker bands on the membrane overlapping the part of the rear, the front part of the wings. They are five nymphal instars, immature stages, if you will. They range in size from the first instar at about two and a half millimeters to the fifth instar is about 12 millimeters in length. The eyes are deep red. The abdomen is a yellowish red in the first instar and progressed to off-white with reddish spots in the fifth instar. So I only have a couple more questions, but I, I wanted to bring up one more quarantine pest that I think is important for us to talk about, and that's the caffra beetle. So what can you tell us about the caffra beetle? That is the big one. Yeah. Um, I think it's in the, it's actually in the top 100 of worst invasive species worldwide. And for that, it's one of the most feared stored product pests that we would have to deal with. Discovered uh, here in the U.S. in California, again, in about 1953. And that led to a massive control and eradication efforts, uh, which extended all the way until uh, 1966 and cost the government over $15 million to get these things under control. These adults, they're kind of an oblong oval beetle approximately 1.6 to 3 millimeters long and about 0.9 to 1.7 millimeters wide. Males are brown to black with the reddish brown markings on their elytra. Females are slightly larger than the males and lighter in color. The head is small and deflexed with short 11 segmented antenna. The antenna have a club on three of the five segments and it kind of fits into a groove on the side of their pronotum. 
and again, the adults are covered with hairs. Again, they have the potential to do a lot of damage with our crops here in any of our, our, our grain products, right? Right. So thanks for sharing some information on some of these uh, better known quarantine pests. Now, I know that there are a lot of other quarantine pests, you know, we could spend hours talking about the physiology of all of these different quarantine pests that we have to concern ourselves with. But I think these ones that we talked about are some of the ones that we need to be most concerned about. And of course, you know, like we talked about earlier, if anybody has any questions about particular quarantine pests, there is a ton of resources out there to ask questions about. So if you run into a quarantine pest that we didn't talk about today, which I, you probably will if you spend any kind of time in the fumigation business, um, just reach out to some of those resources. You know, the APHIS Treatment Manual talks about a lot of different uh, types of quarantine pests. The USDA has a lot of people on staff that know. There are entomologists that work in our industry that understand. And then you can always reach out to folks like uh, Derek or myself or other people in the industry, the manufacturers of some of the fumigants. All of these people are going to have some really good knowledge on a wide variety of quarantine pests that we can run into. And talking about some of the challenges uh, that we faced, and we talked about some of those as they pertain to quarantine fumigations earlier, but I, I want to ask again, are there any specific challenges that we need to consider when we're trying to fumigate for quarantine pests? Yeah, again, um, I think we touched on a lot of these earlier. The, the main thing is understanding uh, the pests that you're dealing with, right? Working with the USDA, working with that treatment manual. When you're dealing with quarantine pests, a lot of times, you know, somebody from the USDA is going to want to be present, if not for the entire fumigation. They're certainly going to want to be there to witness us taking readings. Again, they're there to ensure that we don't allow these pests to establish themselves here in the U.S. So they have some skin in the game, if you will, to ensure that they're protecting our country's supply of whatever the commodity is that is of concern. But in addition, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention earlier, you know, in addition to the USDA and obviously the manufacturers and, and the distributors of the different, there's a lot of people um, that have input into how we proceed with treatments, right, with uh, awareness. So whether you're talking the state extension services, different universities, there's a ton of different trade organizations and trade associations that are heavily involved in this aspect of, of our business, right? They have a financial uh, interest in assuring that these pests are controlled. So again, it's it's an all hands on deck approach when whenever we're dealing with these potential invasive pests. Yeah, group effort for sure. You know, and this is one of those areas in our industry where everybody kind of comes together to kind of help set the standard and regulate the industry to make sure that it is viable and that it works for everybody. So it really is truly one of those areas in our industry where we see that group effort happen a lot. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that has, has attracted me to this industry is there is competition involved, right? It's the world we live in. But like you said, and I think you said it very well, the, when you're talking about the devastation that can be caused when these pests arrive here, in addition to the different health aspects, you know, when we're talking about our crop, we're talking about our ability to live in this country and have all the things that, that we like to have, in addition to remaining healthy as a country, right? We're all going to be involved to help protect our food chain, to help protect the health of our United States citizens. So 
we're certainly not competitive in that aspect. We all want to thrive and we all want everybody to be happy and healthy. hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So last question here, what advice would you give a brand new fumigator about quarantine fumigations for the control of quarantine pests? I think the best advice I can give to anybody is don't assume, right? Um, You may be very well versed in all things pest control related and fumigations in general, but don't be afraid to reach out. Like we mentioned earlier, these, these institutions aren't designed to be a gotcha type of thing, right? It's, it's all help. So don't be afraid to reach out. If you don't know, you, you simply don't know. I certainly can tell you, I don't know everything. I've been in this for 30 years and I ask questions all the time. I don't, again, I'm not afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions of professionals. Find that representative at the USDA, your manufacturer, your distributor rep, um, get them involved. Just again, engage them with questions, attend uh, as many uh, of these trade shows that you can look online, read. I don't know if you could sit through and, and read the entire APHIS treatment manual. <laughs> if, 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 if you could, uh, more power to you, but use it as a reference. Again, just keep yourself open, listen, learn, ask questions. Um, that's the best advice I can give anybody. Yeah, I say that all the time myself, you know, and I and I appreciate you offering that as advice because I think it's extremely important. I cannot stress enough how important it is to remain open-minded and inquisitive. I mean, really what it boils down to is, yeah, you know, we're fumigators, we're the bug guys, so to speak, but really we're detectives. You know, we have to wear that detective hat when we're doing inspections and when we're doing treatments. We have to remain open-minded and inquisitive and we have to think about the things that we're doing. And we, and we have to ask a lot of questions to get to the bottom of things, so to speak. And the minute that you stop learning in this industry is the minute that you probably should get out of the industry, <laughs> you know, because it's, you know, every, I ask questions every single day. I've been in the industry, not 30 years, but I've been in the industry 20 years and I ask questions every single day. It's so important to remain open-minded and inquisitive in order to be successful in this industry. So I, I really appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. So that's all the questions I had for you, Derek. I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your busy day. Uh, we're, we're recording this in the spring, mind you, which is one of the busiest seasons for the United States when it comes to fumigation. So uh, thank you, Derek, for taking some time out of that schedule and uh, answering some some of these important questions when it comes to quarantine pests. Man, again, it's it's my pleasure. You know, I've I've always drawn on you. You know, in in the past, if again, if I have a question, I'm I'm not afraid to reach out to anybody. Uh, ben, you've been a, a help to me and my teams throughout the years. So again, anything I can do to help you out, to help out anybody in the industry, I'm I'm here. Well, the feeling is definitely mutual, Derek. I appreciate all of the uh, time and attention you've given me as well, because I think I've probably called you uh, as many times as you've called me with questions. So thank you. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Well, I certainly appreciate the time. All right. Thanks. I want to thank Derek for speaking with us today about this challenging topic. I know that as long as you follow the very specific regulatory requirements for the control of these quarantine pests, you'll be able to complete a safe and successful fumigation. So far, we've talked a lot about the specific pests associated with stored products. In the remaining episodes, we'll be discussing some of the tools and techniques we use to both identify and control these pests. 
Our next episode will include some very valuable information about crop protection and growth regulators. These are terrific tools to help control pest populations. And remember, if you have a question you'd like for us to answer, please feel free to email us at podcast at degishamerica.com. Or you can also find us on our website at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. So until next time, I'm Ben Harl. And as always, I hope you have a safe and terrific day.